What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a nuclear power scare in Ukraine. What is Putin's plan for Eastern Europe and beyond with NBC military analyst and decorated veteran Colonel Jack Jacobs? Russia is basically a 14th century country with 21st century uh, weapons that they haven't changed in a millennium even, that it makes no difference whether you've got Putin or Schmutin or Ivan the Terrible, the Russians are going to pretty much stay the same as they always have been. All the latest with our Squawk Box anchors, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Is this going to go on for years? Russia ultimately winds up taking control of the entire country. Two to four million refugees are in NATO countries. And then what ensues is an extremely, uh, is a long, a tedious and costly uh, guerrilla war inside Ukraine. And Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. And what good is having all these countries when your economy is just, it, it does nothing for the people. So you, and by you, the way, the people hate you in the places you're taking over. Plus, a man who reported on the Russian oligarchs and then lived to tell the tale, author Ben Mesrick. They found Putin. He was a low-level KGB agent. They moved him to Moscow, put him in power over the country, thinking they could control him. And then he flipped it around on them and became the biggest oligarch of all. It's Friday, March 4th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. The world was shocked by news late last night of a possible nuclear scare at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Ukrainian officials reported that the Zaporizhia plant in the eastern part of the country was on fire after coming under heavy attack from Russian forces. Leaders in Ukraine appealed to the West desperately for help and warned of a meltdown that could be bigger than the disaster at Chernobyl. The fire was located behind the main plant facility in an area used for training. Firefighting efforts were initially blocked due to the Russian assault. But authorities at the plant say the fire was extinguished and radiation levels are normal. Russian forces have seized the power plant, but they are allowing Ukrainian staffers inside to operate it today. 
Three Ukrainian soldiers were killed and two wounded in the attack. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a video message responding, Europe needs to wake up. He accused Russia of nuclear terror. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency Good morning, everybody. addressed reporters this morning. Unfortunately, here we are in completely uncharted waters. And But what, is, what animates this initiative is the need to act. Squawk Box anchors Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke today to retired U.S. Army Colonel Jack Jacobs about this new phase of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Jacobs was awarded the Medal of Honor for his Army service in Vietnam. Colonel, we're relatively young, but my father fought in that last world war, and he you know, froze his feet the Battle of Bulge in, in Belgium. I thought those days were behind us. And it wasn't that long ago. And I'm just, it is, what we're seeing now is so shocking and so beyond the pale, but it's something that do we need to come to grips with this after that Macron conversation yesterday, that this guy can, can keep going even after Ukraine? Well, I think his plan is to, is to do exactly that. Uh, ideally, in his view, he'd like to take back all those, all those lands that used to be Soviet Socialist Republics, uh, many of which are now uh, part of NATO. And those that are not part of NATO, particularly in Northeastern Europe, are very much concerned about, uh, about Russia's expansion in the region. But make no mistake about it, he's, he's certainly interested in expanding, uh, expanding Russia. Now, it's something to keep in mind. Uh, we remember that he invaded... Uh, Ukraine eight years ago, eight years ago, and took over Crimea. And nothing resulted from his doing that. And then we had, I mean, we had four years of, uh, of a president saying that uh, relationships, uh, alliances were not important, that we were not particularly interested in Europe, and all that uh, uh, contributes to what we see today. So he's not convinced that we have very much interest in defending our interests and your observation that uh, the perception that the kind of ground warfare that we saw in the Second World War in Vietnam even um, and in other skirmishes around the world, that's, those days are over. His perception is that we think that, that Europe thinks that. And as a result, he has this tool with which he can carry on because he thinks that we're terribly concerned it will escalate into something bigger, which is why you see what's happening now, Joe. Even if it, so NATO, that, that would theoretically uh, bring in a lot of, of uh, bring in the United States, bring in our, our NATO allies. It would become a shooting war at that point. The worst case scenario is possible at that. So would he stop at, at or, or it would only include non-NATO countries at this point? Should, should, we, no, I, should we assume he's going to keep going so maybe we don't wait for it to happen to a NATO country? What's happening in Ukraine is an insult to, to all and an outrage and, and, and a war crime and something that, that we could stop. We could do something to that convoy, but I'm not convinced that, that we should at this point. But what would you do? What, should we let it happen? Doesn't that just make it an even bigger thing we're going to have to handle in the future? Well, there's no... There's no public support for anything except publicly supporting Ukraine. I think if you took a poll, 
majority of the American public would not favor going into, uh, into physically and to support Ukraine to send troops there. The troops we have in the region there are actually both to look like we're willing to defend Europe and to assist with the millions of refugees that will ultimately be across, uh, be across the border. That's basically an administrative and logistical assistance. The kinds of things that we should have done, we haven't. There's something we can do right now that will assist the Ukrainians, though it's, uh, it's, I'm not convinced. It's probably too little too late, but the Ukrainian army is desperately in need of anti-tank weapons, surface-to-air weapons, artillery and small arms and automatic weapons, ammunition, and so on. And if we're going to get it to them, we better hurry up because the Russian forces, having encircled uh, the cities, are now going to send a follow-on echelons to link up south to north, north to south, so they can cut the country in two. And then it will be impossible to resupply. So we better start resupplying now. Strategically, whatever strictures, economic strictures, we can put on Russia uh, and people and countries who are supporting Russia, uh, whatever, whatever we, we better do it now. Uh, we've discovered that if we wait too long, they, they, they don't have the effect, the effect that we want to have. Uh, so we're going to have to do it soon. We, you, we talked last time we were together about whether or not there was some kind of uh, negotiated settlement. And, uh, and there is, but it would require uh, Ukraine to, to comply, would require Russia to comply, and it would re- require, in exchange for Russia's giving up uh, its claims, removing its troops for Ukraine to give up the eastern provinces. But I think we're a long, long way yeah, I mean, from that Colonel, now. Do, do you think all his generals and, uh, and much less the, the Russian people are drinking this, the Kool-Aid? I mean, can, can they control the, the news flow so well inside Russia that people are saying, yeah, this is a good thing? Or does it finally get to the... This seems so, like I said, beyond the pale for the current world order. To, to have something like this happening. And it, I don't know, maybe we're all naive about the global economy. And, and, I, and I, I think China must be looking at this and saying, wow, I wish we hadn't you know, made that friendship deal a month ago. As, as, you know, as much criticism as China has come under, but for, you know, they're, you know they want to rule the world and uh, hegemony and everything else. But they, it seems like they may be the, the adult in the room for us at this point. Can we think that? Uh, well, the other argument is China takes a look at this, sees that we're in effect and ineffectual and says, you know, maybe we can take over Taiwan much right. more easily. So I, I think there's, that's a, they're, they're keeping an eye on this very, very closely. With respect to the Russian people, uh, they have been fed and drunk and consumed and metabolized the, the Kool-Aid. Uh, they, the Russians are in control of the flow of information. And think about this. The, 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 the first revolution, well, there was a revolution in the 1800s. The first serious revolution in Russia occurred in 1905. The second one, the more successful one, occurred in 1917. And that was successful at least partially because of the effect of World War I. That's 12, that's 12 years to get the Russian people to fire up. Uh, there are, I heard somebody say recently that, that Russia is basically a 14th century country with 
21st century uh, weapons that they haven't changed in a millennium even, that it makes no difference whether you've got Putin or Schmutin or Ivan the Terrible, that the Russians are going to pretty much stay the same as they always have been, effectively internally docile, especially if the flow of information is controlled like it is today. I, I, I doubt seriously if the Russians are, despite the people who are in the streets and so on, from time to time, that the Russians are in any position to, to change the leadership, let alone the regime. No, I think Putin's going to carry on doing what he's doing, and it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for us to stop it. Colonel, the weapons that you mentioned, I mean, that's what stops the Western world at this point from maybe being a more, more aggressive with this. He, he has nuclear weapons. We don't know his stability <clears throat> at this point. We don't know his uh, rationality level at this point. And that's one issue that, that we don't want to see escalating to those levels. I mean, how, how can we get our hands around that part of the equation? Uh, there's no way that we control how he, how he thinks. Uh, one argument says that um, he, he has directed his generals to do X, and they do it whether they want to or not, and they don't tell him, no, you really shouldn't do that, and they do it anyway, uh, at least partially because a lot of the people at the top of the military food chain have benefited economically from being close to Putin. The other argument is that Putin doesn't know anything. And it's his generals who are convincing him to do this. Uh, well, the truth is, truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Whether or not, whether or not Putin's capable of doing something irrational, I mean, this, what he's doing is rational from his standpoint. Whether or not he's willing to or can do something that's completely irrational from everybody's standpoint uh, is, difficult to, uh, is difficult to tell. I mean, people who, are, who do this for a living, who psychoanalyze people from a distance for a living can't even agree can't but even agree on that current, current, so i there's no way of telling what the results are going to colonel be. you know just play it out we were talking to uh the former secretary of the treasury yesterday about what what the off-ramp looks like what the exit looks like and obviously it was a lot easier to see what that might look like two weeks ago three weeks ago but i mean is this going to go on for years is there is is if if China were to step up, what does stepping up even mean? Just sort of play the dominoes for us. I think it's unlikely China is going to step up. And I think they want to stay as far away as possible from the actual action that's taking place in Europe. Their focus is on the Western Pacific. That's why they're just keeping an eye on us. Um, but here's a scenario that's, that's the most likely to, uh, to play out. Russia ultimately winds up taking control of the entire country. Two to four million refugees are in NATO countries in Romania. Uh, they're in Poland. They get taken in by other NATO countries farther to the west. And then what ensues is an extremely, uh, is a long, a tedious and costly uh, guerrilla war inside Ukraine. Uh, and then we're going to have to make a decision whether or not we're going to assist in that, whether or not we're going to send weapons. We're going to fund that uh, because at that time, then, the things that you're talking about, uh, Putin's state of mind, how he reacts to the situation, he'll be in a different situation than he is now. He'll be in a situation like he was in, in, in uh, Afghanistan. If we continue to assist there, then we could question whether or not he's going to do something that's completely irrational from the, 
from the from the standpoint of world peace. Yeah. Well, he's not going to live forever. I, I hear he wants to stay till 2036, but it would take, you know, it took eight years since, since the last thing. How long is it going to take to consolidate Ukraine? Does he hope his successor keeps adding to the... And, and what good is having all these countries when your economy is just... It, it does nothing for the people. So you... you I don't understand yeah, the, why, why bringing Mother Russia to its previous supposed glory, which doesn't include being part of the world order and part of the global economy. I don't see why that, uh, does he think history books are going to write about the great Vladimir Putin? There's no Valkyrie type situation that could happen, do you think? I don't know if you saw, but it means different things, but it was a movie, I guess it happened, well not a movie, a movie about something that happened in World War II, where some of the generals knew that that Hitler was, was not good for the world or for Germany. And they didn't succeed. Yeah, they, but no, nothing like that yeah. can happen. Well, it can happen, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. I mean, it's entirely possible that a rogue general, a coup of generals, may try to do exactly what happened back then. But I, but I got to tell you this: that his his perception of what's going to happen afterwards is different than what our perception is. He thinks that eventually the West is going to get tired. That our focus on economics is such that we're going to say, okay, you won. Uh, We tried our best and you got it now. Okay, let's reestablish our economic relationships. Not just us. He thinks less so. He thinks that we're going to be cowed by our Western European allies who can't wait until they get the the next oil, fuel oil delivery. That they're going to be so economically dependent on relationships with Russia that they're going to convince us over time to say, look, why don't you just, live? just quit because we're, we're in big trouble. And unless you let Russia off the hook, uh, you got problems with us. I truly believe that he believes that. And I'm telling you, I think there are people in the West who believe it too. All right, Colonel, uh, Colonel Jacobs, th- thank you. Uh, it's only been two weeks. I guess we're so impatient these days, but we, we thought we were in one world and it turns out that maybe the world's not so different from you know, what our parents and grandparents dealt with. It wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. To Jack's last point, I mean, the idea that sanctions are going to come down against the Iranians at this point maybe proves back to the idea that, yeah, we're, we're willing to have morals, but only for so long until the pain is too much. Next on Squawk Pod, Ben Mesrick, the man who spent time with the Russian and the Bitcoin billionaires and wrote all about them both. How worlds collide. If I were an oligarch, I'd have a ton of Bitcoin. I'd have NFTs, you know, I'd have all of this stuff because uh, it's not something that's easily controllable by anybody else. And it's also very freeing. You can just get up and move to the next country with it. The oligarchs who put Putin in power right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. 
Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. President Biden announcing new sanctions on eight members of the Russian elite and their families. This is the latest attempt to try and squeeze Vladimir Putin as the Russian invasion of Ukraine intensifies. Robert Frank joins us now with more. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Becky. Well, the White House announcing blocking sanctions on eight wealthy Russians and their families and visa restrictions on another 18 Russian oligarchs and 47 family members. The most prominent person on the new list is Alisher Usmanov. He's got a net worth of around $20 billion. He's got stakes in steel, media, and internet companies. His yacht and his private plane, that's an Airbus A340, the largest private plane in Russia. Those will be barred from entering the U.S. Meanwhile, Roman Abramovich has not been sanctioned, but he's putting his British soccer team, Chelsea FC, up for sale for about $4 billion. He said the sale proceeds will go to a foundation benefiting all victims of the war in Ukraine. He's also selling his London properties, including the mansion near Kensington Palace that he bought for over $100 million back in 2009. French officials seizing a yacht they said is owned by Igor Sechin. He's a billionaire under sanction. They seized the 280-foot yacht after learning it was, quote, making arrangements to sail urgently. But the company managing the ship denied that Sechin is the direct owner. The White House saying Germany seized Usmanov's boat earlier this week, but German officials denied it. This yacht is registered in the Cayman Islands, owned by a shell company. Becky, that's going to be the issue here. These guys have been planning for this for years. Almost everything they own is through a shell company or an anonymous LLC. And it's going to be difficult to legally prove that A, they are the owners, and B, that it can be seized. So there's going to be a lot of legal battles here even after they seize this, this real estate in these boats. Hey, Robert, you know, we had Mnuchin on yesterday, and he said he was advocating for more sanctions. I think the sanctions in general are very effective. Uh, in general, they're more effective at the time. So I would have been putting more sanctions on earlier on. Um, I don't think sanctions alone are in any way an off-ramp, but there's no question at this point I would be putting on more sanctions. Um, in the aftermath of that interview, there were a number of, of critics, if you will, perhaps of the Trump administration uh, that said you want more sanctions now, but you know you lifted sanctions on people like Deripaska back in 2019. Do you see any connection between those two? Because the more I think about it, the more I think actually that sanctioning them back then would have had no impact, I would think, but maybe I'm wrong on what's happened now. Well, you're right about Oleg Deripaska. So what happened is the Treasury Department stunned a lot of people in Congress by lifting sanctions on Deripaska's companies, saying they were satisfied he was no longer connected. Well, it turns out he is still connected to those companies. So that was clearly a mistake. But the 2014 sanctions, which even predated that, did not work either. And the reason was because these Russians, they simply transferred their assets to their relatives. And the second reason they didn't work is because there was the assumption that they would then put pressure on Putin to change his policies. And it just doesn't work that way in Russia. So I think they've learned their lessons. They don't expect to, to, these guys will put pressure on Putin. And they also are hoping to include their families this time of the oligarchs so that they can't more easily transfer assets. So we'll see whether it works better this time. Okay, Robert, thank you. 
Our next guest has firsthand experience with the Russian oligarchy. Let's welcome Ben Mezrik, whose 2015 book, Once Upon a Time in Russia, The Rise of the Oligarchs, is a rare inside look at the lives of these billionaires who made their fortunes when the Soviet Union fell. His latest novel was just published as well. It's called The Midnight Ride, which is a historical thriller. And, and Ben, I had forgotten you wrote this book. You're so prolific. You've written so many things since. Um, but I saw a thread that you put on Twitter the other day just talking about your time researching this book and writing it and the time you spent with the oligarchs. I mean, that is yeah. a, a rare, rare thing to get that much time up close with these people. Yeah, How'd I mean, sometimes it? I try to forget. I try to forget <laughs> I wrote this book as well. <laughs> I mean, it's a, a crazy story. I spent a year hanging out with oligarchs in bars and clubs and yachts and owners' clubs of uh, of soccer teams. And and what's going on right now is really wild to watch. The oligarchs put Putin in power, but Putin flipped it around on them. And I tell this story um, that's amazing. But they found Putin. He was a low-level KGB agent in Saint Petersburg. They knew him because he'd helped set up a car dealership for one of them. They moved him to Moscow, put him in power over the country, thinking they could control him. And then he flipped it around on them and became the biggest oligarch of all. Um, so we're at this moment where we're trying to get the oligarchs to retake the power they once had. Um, but their relationship with Putin is, is not what people think. Did, did the oligarchs realize this back in 2014 and 15 when you were meeting with them? Did they realize that they had lost control? Yeah, because what happened was uh, they placed Putin in power. And in the first week of power, Putin invited all of the oligarchs to Stalin's old home. And this is a place where there's bullet holes in the walls where they used to line people up. And Putin sat these men down at the table and he said, you've all made tons of money. You're all billionaires. You can keep your money. But from here on out, you stay out of my way. And any oligarch who stayed out of his way is an oligarch today. Any oligarch who did not was found hanging in their bathroom or fell down an elevator shaft or fell out of a helicopter. So the, the oligarchs understood when I was meeting with them that Putin was you know, the leader, um, that they used to run the country and now they were running around London with their yachts and their beautiful homes. Um, so uh, trying to force them to redo what, what it used to be, to go back to the 90s, um, is a really interesting situation. Um, and we'll see what happens, I think. You think they have the power to do something like that? Do they undo this unholy alliance that they themselves you created? You know, two weeks ago, I would have said absolutely not. Um, from, from what I know about the oligarchs and from what I know about the relationship with Putin is, is that Putin is a strong man. He is very popular um, in his country. He chased the oligarchs out of, out of, out of Russia. And, and at the time, they were known for the corruption. They had been handed all of the resources by, uh, by, uh, by Yeltsin, um, who picked them because they were friends with his party-hopping daughter. So he handpicked all of these oligarchs and gave one of them the aluminum companies and one of them the oil companies. Um, and so they were living very large. But as soon as Putin came in, everything shifted. So I would have said, no, um, Putin has all the power. But in the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, something very different going on. I don't believe this is what Putin planned on. This was not a calculated situation that we're in right now. Um, and so I think we're at a place that, that anything goes at this point. You, you mean he's not in a calculated situation? He miscalculated on the idea that the Ukrainians would fight back so strongly. Well, I think he miscalculated on the world. I think the world's support took him by surprise. I think he believed he would move in, there would be some yelling for a couple days, and then it would be business as usual. I don't think he believed he'd ever be in a situation where the entire world 
is now isolating Russia, attempting to go after all the yachts and all of the, I mean, it's an incredible move. We're chasing down yachts in the ocean. I, you know, it's like a movie being played out in front of us. And I really don't think that this was the plan. But I also don't think saying Putin is this bully we stand up to is the correct way to look at it. Putin is a man who has a vision that he's had all along of resurrecting the Soviet empire. From the very beginning, he has said, the biggest mistake of the last century was the fall of the Soviet empire. So it's not that he's this bully lashing out at the world. He's a person with a very defined vision. And as he gets closer to his end game, we have to understand that his goal is this, this giant empire. And we have to deal with that, not deal with an individual bully. You know, um, we have been hearing some of the comments. Robert was just talking about the comments from some of the oligarchs where they say, OK, we're going to sell this, uh, this football club and the proceeds are going to go to help the Ukrainian people. Um, you have others who have said Russian companies and Russian oligarchs who have said we're not in favor of this. We don't want to see a war and aggression in Ukraine. Are they saying this with cover from Putin? Or are they really stepping aside and taking a break from Putin? Um, that's a great question. I think that they are stepping out. I do think that there is some maneuvering going on here. This is not something that I think you would have heard Roman Abramovich talk about four weeks ago. Um, I think that they were very much Putin's cash register. He said something and they did it. And I think now you're hearing them um, getting nervous and it might be showing some some cracks in that in that power dynamic. Um, it's hard to tell. Um, but I do think that we're seeing something that I would have never expected a couple of weeks ago. Some of these people speaking out um, it, what seems to be against what Putin wants. Ben, one of the many, many books you've written is one that focuses on crypt cryptocurrency, too, Bitcoin billionaires. Um, so you're pretty deeply embroiled in that. And this is all come, coming, coming back and being tied to this, too. In response to a question by Senator Mark Warner at a hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday, the Fed chair Jay Powell had this to say about concerns that sanctions could be sidestepped using crypto. Listen in. We do have laws on the books and, and, and all that, but I, I, I think... Um for digital finance generally, we, we need a legal framework that would that would really take take a take away as much as possible of the possibility uh, that people could use unbacked cryptocurrencies as as a way to evade the law or to finance terrorism and you know hide their hide their ill-gotten gains and things like that. So, so Ben, do you think this is a real issue, or do you think this is a red herring, as, as some of the crypto industry leaders have suggested? I mean, first of all, I say good luck with that, right? <laughs> the whole point of crypto is that you can move money around without, you know, having uh, it go through any middleman, go through any authority. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of, of Bitcoin and crypto is that it's it's free. It's yours. Um, I think that it's somewhat of a red herring. I do think a lot of money's moving that way. If I were an oligarch, I'd have a ton of Bitcoin. I'd have NFTs, you know, I'd have all of this stuff because uh, it's not something that's easily controllable by anybody else. And it's also very free and you can just get up and move to the next country with it. Um, yeah, so I do think that like it's a yeah, it's a concern, but um, but I'm not certain what anybody can do about it or whether it's even right to do something about it. Uh, ben, all of your books kind of colliding in the real world right now. Uh, want to thank you for your time today. Uh, yeah, and uh, thank you. And Midnight Ride, my new one, Midnight Ride, is out, and I just want to tell people we're doing a fun interactive puzzle with it. So if you're at all in, in, into NFTs, buy Midnight Ride, and you can go get a free NFT that's a puzzle that sends you back to the book. So we're creating one of the biggest virtual book clubs in the world. Um, so check out Midnight Ride and find me on Twitter, and you can find your way to it. Thank you. Ben, ben Mesrick, thank you, sir. 
You can follow Ben Mesrick on Twitter. He's at Ben Mesrick to read his 26-tweet thread about his experiences reporting on Russian oligarchs. And we're at Squawk, CNBC, by the way. Send us any thoughts or questions about the show or the podcast. And thanks for listening to Squawk Pod. Thanks for ending your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. They're on CNBC weekday mornings at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show, right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 